All right, guys, so we're going to be diving into the Old Testament book of Amos, which is about the judgment and justice of God. So this series is going to be called The Cry for Justice, which is really appropriate that we're going to be looking at this book coming off this last week in our city. And so this week, uh, Pastor Jordan and I were in Atlanta in uh, actually in the Civil Rights Museum, as we were checking the notifications on our phone and seeing that the verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin was coming in. And so we were sitting next to each other on the front lawn in front of the Civil Rights Museum in Atlanta, looking at CNN together and watching the verdict land. And I just want to reflect on that a little bit because I think it's important for all of us to, to think through that from a biblical perspective. And so I want to give you three um, reflections. The first reflection is that the verdict in that trial matters. It should matter to us and it, it matters to God. It, it matters at a human level because in Romans chapter 13, it says that the government authorities are instituted by God, and the purpose of the governing authorities is to uphold justice. And here's what I'm saying. I think justice was done in this case. Had I been a juror, I would have affirmed everything that that jury affirmed. And I believe that it matters that the law is upheld by our government. The second thing that I'm reflecting on is that the way that we use power matters. Okay, in Proverbs 14, 31, it says, if you oppress the poor, you insult your maker. Okay, so what we witnessed on that video was a murder. What made it worse was that it was also a clear abuse of power. So it's brutal if you murder somebody. It insults your maker if you use your power that way. And the third thing that I think transitions us into the book of Amos well is that in this case, ultimate justice was not done. George Floyd is still dead. And so we're all left with this lingering feeling like, I feel like what was done was right, but there's a lot of information that we don't know, including the motives and intentions of Derek Chauvin's heart. And that's because earthly justice is always a pointer to ultimate justice. And so we are reminded, as 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, that we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So maybe you had mixed feelings like I did. As Derek Chauvin was cuffed and led away, I was rejoicing because I felt like justice was done. But I also felt this pit in my stomach because I was reminded that I deserve what he is getting on an ultimate scale. And so as we open up the prophet of Amos, the setting is that the people of God 
are wealthy, they're politically prosperous, and they have become the oppressors. And they're sitting back, and they're believing that because they are wealthy and prosperous, that they have the blessing of God. And here's what's actually happening. They have deceived themselves. They have lied to themselves. And Amos is going to point us to this reality that we all have this tendency to deceive ourselves about our spiritual condition and to place our hope not in the God who saves, but in our own self-righteousness. So we're going to introduce the book this morning with kind of a hard-hitting theme, and it's this reality that the people of God are not immune to the judgment of God. God disagrees with Israel's assessment of its own righteousness, and he declares that they have done injustice and polluted their land. So we're going to see three reasons for this. The first is that God is the judge. We're looking at Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, when he, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Okay, so immediately we're introduced to both the time that the book of Amos is written and the person who's writing. So it was written during the reign of Uzziah, during the reign of Jeroboam which is about 700 years before Christ. And it says that he is a shepherd, blue-collar worker from a place called Tekoa. So Tekoa was in Judah, which is the southern kingdom. Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south. He's writing from Judah, the less powerful kingdom. Uzziah is the king of Judah, Jeroboam's the king of Israel. So this is a time of economic prosperity for Israel and Judah. It seems like everything is going well. But underneath the surface, it's a time of idol worship and brutality to the poor and the marginalized. It's a time where Judah and Israel had connected their prosperity to God's blessing. And into this, the most unlikely of people is speaking up. It's a shepherd. It's somebody who doesn't have political power. He doesn't have any weight to throw around. And so maybe the first question we should answer is, who cares? Why would we consider the words of a blue-collar worker in Judah to be the word of God? And, and so we're brought into this tension. And here's what we see in this text. It says the words of Amos, but then later on in that same verse, it says, which he saw. So here's Amos' claim. 
These words of judgment are not coming from him. He's saying, they were revealed to me. I saw them. And then he gives us the origin of those words. He says he saw them because the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now, there's another irony brought in here because we've got this picture of God roaring like a lion, one of the most ferocious animals in all of the animal kingdom. So we get this picture of strength and roaring, but then it says he roars out of Jerusalem, which literally means city of peace. So here's the evidence that this is, in fact, the word of God. It's that God is speaking in such a counterintuitive way. Why would he speak such a powerful word of judgment through a shepherd? Because why else would a shepherd speak up like this? Why else would a shepherd put his neck on the line and risk being killed by the powerful unless what he is saying is true? And what he says is that contrary to popular belief, God is not blessing the people of God. God is not happy with the people of God. God is angry with the people of God. Do you know why lions roar? Lions roar because they are protectors and they are predators. They roar because something is threatening them. And God is saying, your injustice and your indifference is a threat to what I am building on this earth. Jerusalem was supposed to be a city of peace, and it has become a place of brutality. And I am angry about that. And so he roars out of Jerusalem. And it reminds us that although we believe that God is a God of love and that God is a God of mercy, we also equally believe that because God is good, God is a God of justice. And so we're reminded that every sin that is committed on this earth will receive a just retribution. No one is getting away with anything. That's the message of the book of Amos. And the reason that God chose Amos to give the message, this humble character, 
is because his humility is supposed to point us to the truthfulness of the message. Imagine if you were at the Minneapolis Zoo and you're walking down the sidewalk looking at the animals and all of a sudden a janitor just comes tearing around the corner running and he's saying the lion got out of its cage run it's coming it's gonna get you well, well I don't know what you do but first thing I do is freeze and then I'd be like there is no way that guy's lying there's no way. He has to be telling the truth because what he's doing looks so foolish that it points to the trustworthiness of his message. And what Amos is doing is so foolish that it points to the trustworthiness of his message. And he's trying to get our attention and he's trying to say, hey, people of God, contrary to popular belief, God is angry with sin. And he is the judge. So that's kind of the big idea of the book of Amos. Okay, why is he angry? Two reasons. First of all, because of the sin of the world. Second of all, because of the sin of the people of God. So the first thing we see is that God judges the world. Okay, Amos chapter 1. We're looking at verses 3 through 5. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Okay, so I, I read a small section which points us to the next six sections in a row. So this formula, this sort of woe formula, is what Amos uses to get our attention. And what he's doing is he is prophesying judgment on all of the nations that surround Israel and Judah. And so he starts with this place called Damascus. And he says that they're going to be judged because they have been brutal to Gilead, threshed them with a sledge of iron. They've gone in with their armies, they have brutalized people, they've enslaved people, they've killed people, they've hated people. And this is especially infuriating to God because as Psalm 60 verse 7 says, Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. So Gilead was part of the people of God. And God's looking at Damascus and he's saying, you don't mess with my kids. And because you have brutalized my family, you will be punished. And God goes from Damascus 
And next he goes to Gaza. And the same formula is used against Gaza. I'm not going to read all these scriptures because of our time. But he says that Gaza has captured a whole group of people and then sold them as slaves. Next he goes to Tyre. T-Y-R-E. And he says they, they've delivered up Edom and did not remember that they were their own brothers. So they had lived with another group of people, Edom, as brothers, and they delivered them up to death, to slavery. They oppressed them because they forgot that they were their own family. To Edom, he says that they showed no pity and they killed their brothers. To the Ammonites, he says they were known for ripping open pregnant women. And Moab, he says that they burned the bones of the king of Edom. So they not only defeated a group of people, but they also disgraced their king. They did the unthinkable. They took their brutality to the extreme. And so as a theme, what we see is that these nations around Israel have used whatever power and influence they have Not to serve the poor and the marginalized. Not to care for the people around them. But they have been brutal oppressors. They have governed with an iron fist. And they have thought, there is no God who sees what we are doing. And so God is roaring out of Zion, out of the city of peace. And he is saying to the world, you will get away with nothing. I see everything that you're doing. And none of it will go unpunished. There is a common belief in our society that if you do not believe in the God of Christianity, then you don't have to deal with the God of Christianity. And what God says to the whole world through the book of Amos is that every person, whether they believe in God or not, will give account for everything that they do in their life. God sees what happens in your home. God sees what happens at your workplace God sees the way that we overlook people with indifference, and God sees the way that we brutalize people with hatred and violence and worse. And he is saying to the whole world, I am not a local judge who just has authority over a specific people, but I am a worldwide judge. Every single person will bow the knee to me. And Amos says that what this is going to look like, the theme of the punishment that God is going to bring on the nations is the image of fire. And literally in Amos' time, just after Amos' time, some of these cities burned 
with fire. But we know that fire is an image throughout the scriptures that came from the mouth of Jesus and continues all the way to the book of Revelation of the judgment of God, which is terrifying. Fire is a beautiful thing. Fire is also a terrifying thing. I remember my buddy Corey and I used to make these massive fires when I was in high school. He lived by a pond, and so we would have like 50 people over to his house, and we'd cut down trees, and we'd take branches and really dry stuff, and we would make these piles that were like 10 feet tall. And then we would soak it with gas. You know, we were teenage boys. And we would just light a match and throw it. And, and I remember the fire was so hot that you couldn't stand within about 10 feet of it without your arm hairs being singed. You just didn't want to get close. This was not like you roast a marshmallow unless you have a really long stick. Right? And so the fire was beautiful, but you don't want to get close to it. And none of us have probably had third-degree burns before, but we've burnt our hand on a stove or we've had a spark come out and, and hit our skin. And we know that if somebody says that you're going to be burned with fire, that they're not messing around. That there is a seriousness to the message. God is not laughing about the rape and child abuse and brutality and wars and oppression that happened down to our day. He is saying to the world, unless you repent, you will be punished. And so you might be able to hear the people of God kind of saying, go get them at this point. Yeah, these people have been brutal. Yeah, these people have attacked us. Yeah, these people have ripped open pregnant women, and you can almost hear the people of God saying, you're right, God, they do deserve to be punished. But here's what's interesting about the structure of the book of Amos. You look at one section of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, God roars against the sins of the world. And for the rest of the book of Amos, he roars against the sins of the people of God. What he's saying to us is, God's judgment of the world is a reminder to us that the people of God, church attenders, people who identify as Christians, who do not repent are also subject to God's judgment. And so we see that God judges his people. We're in Amos chapter 2, starting with verse 4. We're going to skip a verse, read a couple more verses, and then uh, skip to verse 10. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. 
because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside the altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Verse 10, also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. So here's the problem that God is addressing. The people of God have used God's love for them and covenant with them as a license to sin. God says, remember, I'm the one who rescued you out of slavery, out of oppression. Remember, I'm the one who gave you the law to teach you to obey my commands so that your life would be blessed in obeying me. And they took these covenant blessings, the love of God, his mercy toward them, and instead of aligning with his will for their lives, they instead used the prosperity that they had gained as an opportunity to oppress other people. And God is saying, essentially, you think it's bad for the world. If you trample on my covenant, it's worse for you. You see, as Christians, we should not be people who are mainly concerned with what is happening in the public school system or what is happening on the streets of Minneapolis. We should be mainly concerned with the condition of our own heart. We're God's kids. We've been saved. We've experienced his love. We've been baptized. We grew up in the church. And those privileges provide the context of our responsibility. And God hates hypocrisy. So here's what was happening in Israel. Maybe this will sound familiar to you. There's two different ways that they were oppressing the poor. One is the more obvious one. They were brutal. They were oppressive. They hated them and despised them, probably spit on them and mocked them for begging for money and would not share what they had with them. They looked down on them and sneered at them. Maybe the more convicting and less obvious one is indifference. They turned away. Even though they had been spiritually poor and destitute and enslaved and God had not turned away from them but had rescued them out of oppression 
when they had no hope, they turned around and were indifferent to the poor in their midst. Second thing, they were sexually immoral. A man and his son go into the same woman. Prostitution, rampant, lust, out of control, sexual immorality everywhere, a normal part of the culture. Just part of the air that they breathe. And if you would have taken a survey, there would have been no distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. They were doing the exact same things. And then there was hypocrisy everywhere. They were doing shady deals in business, and then they were taking the garment, the piece of clothing that they had stolen from somebody, and they were bringing that with them to the place of worship, and they were making a sacrifice. And as the sacrifice burned on the altar, they were laying on the stolen blanket by the altar. And God is saying, do you not see your hypocrisy? Do you not see that I don't just want your outward motions of religion? I want you to do justice. I want you to do righteousness. I want you to love and to serve the poor in your midst and to care for those around you. The way that Paul, the apostle, asks the question in the New Testament is, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Is this okay? Can we use God's rescue of us as a license to sin? And he says emphatically, by no means. See, in God's economy, judgment starts with us. And over and over again, throughout the book of Amos, Amos is going to remind us of this reality, and we are going to see a side of God that in evangelicalism we are not used to seeing because we don't want to look there because it will make us afraid. And so the question becomes, what do we do with this God? the God who hates sin. And we are people who have blood on our hands. We are people who sin through indifference and brutality. There was a really um, poignant moment in Derek Chauvin's trial that stuck out to me. It was when the prosecution looked at him and they said, you chose pride over policing. What were they saying? 
you used your position, the clothes that you were wearing, not to protect and serve our community, but to brutalize our community. And do you know what happened to me when I heard that? I was studying the book of Amos, and I was thinking about that, and I think what's so often true of us as the people of God is we choose pride over true Christianity. We choose to use this uniform. I'm a church attender. I got a Bible with a leather cover. I'm a pastor. We use our position within Christianity to hide instead of to protect and serve. And God is saying, you must repent. But how can we repent when God won't let us get away with anything? And the answer is found not directly in the book of Amos, but in the direction that the book of Amos will point us because Amos will point us to the cross. Here's what happened at the cross. God did not sweep our sin under the rug of the universe. God poured out the fire of his judgment on his own son for us. For our sexual immorality, for our brutality, for our indifference, for our luxurious lifestyle at the expense of the poor and needy. He poured out his judgment on his own son. Why? Because God is not just a God of justice and judgment. God is a God of mercy. And so at the cross, what happened is that God's love provided atonement for us through punishing his son in our place. So at the cross, we can repent because we can agree with God, the God of Amos, that our sins deserve to be punished without us being incinerated by the judgment of God. And we can experience his love as we repent. So I'm asking you, examine yourself to see whether you have truly been transformed by the grace of God or if you have been using his grace as a license to get away with sin. Let's pray. God, this is a difficult message. It's a message that I was not excited to preach. I'm sure it's a message that Amos wasn't excited to preach. But it's a message that we desperately need to hear. God, thank you that you are so good 
that you are a God of justice, that you leave no sin unpunished. And thank you that you've provided a way for us to escape your wrath, not by glossing over it, but by punishing your own son in our place. We bow the knee to King Jesus. Jesus, thank you for stepping in and for taking on what we deserve on the cross so that we can go free. In Jesus' name, amen.